welcome to another very special episode of Let Me Explain You a Thing. My name is Andrew, and this is the podcast where I talk extemporaneously on a subject I know a decent amount about. Usually on my drive to work, as is the case today, so apologies for road noise. And today, I return from a brief holiday break, which it occurs to me you may not have been aware of, because I planned ahead. I scheduled a couple episodes to come out during the holiday break. Uh, so go me. But today we are back, and I wanted to talk, because it's it's the new year, but it's still part of the 12 days of Christmas, which is uh, pertinent to our topic, as we will see. Hi guys, before I get any further, I would just like to say I'm going to be trying something a little bit different, recording from home today, so apologies for cat noise, and I thought I would try co-hosting with myself and see how this goes, jump in when I can add some extra context and so forth, and of course, uh, elephant in the room, this is after the 12 days of Christmas. With that out of the way, back to the episode. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Charles Dickens classic, Martin Chuzzlewit. No, um, A Christmas Carol. Uh, I recently saw a production of A Christmas Carol starring a a noted actor who did not give (laughs) one of his uh, uh, best-known screen credits in his bio in the program, so that was funny. Um, uh, So I wanted to... I, I saw a production that kind of changed my thinking on it. I recently reread it, uh, just for some holiday vibes, you know? And, uh, I, I have some... I have some thoughts. Uh, this has been building for a while. I remember a few few winters, few Christmases ago, I read The Man Who Invented Christmas. Forget the author. It was... I believe it was recently adapted into a film, like a biopic post-production Andrew back just to chime in with a couple details on The Man Who Invented Christmas. Uh, The book was published in 2008, written by Les Standiford. I, from what I can remember, I would recommend it. I have not seen the film adaptation, but the cast includes Christopher Plummer and Jonathan Price. Uh, It runs just over 100 minutes, and it seems to have been reasonably well-received by critics and audiences alike. Uh, around 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, yeah, so... A Christmas Carol is kind of interesting for me because, well, for one thing, you may or may not be aware, Christmas is endlessly fascinating to me. Um, I recorded a podcast last year around this time on winter holidays, um, just kind of the broad historical, cultural overview of you know, Christmas, Yuletide, and, and why these have a place at the end of the year or in the winter or, or hovering around the winter solstice. So go back and listen to that episode, uh, if you're interested. A Christmas Carol, uh, yeah, I'll just step back to that, um, the main topic. It's fairly rare when there's a story in the zeitgeist that most of us many people could, you know, recite beat by beat by heart. 
that we could we could fill in a, a complete outline of the story because, and why is that? Um, I mean, it's because this is uh, a story that is put to stage and screen so often. Um, I mean, how many, how many film adaptations of A Christmas Carol have you seen? Probably you know, if, if you're in this space, if you're, you know, a person who watches Christmas movies for any reason, um, then you've probably seen at least two or maybe even three. Um, and we'll include TV specials in there too. Like, I remember as a kid watching, like, literally a Flintstones Christmas Carol on Cartoon Network, and it was like... Uh, Fred Flintstone as Scrooge, Barney Rubble was Jacob Marley, Wilma was like the ghost of Christmas past. It was very weird and definitely just, you know, a reskinning of the story with characters that you know had no, no real connection to the Flintstones or to, you know, those characters' relationships or even really personalities necessarily. Um, it was just like, hey, you know, Scrooge and Marley are buddies. Fred and Barney are buddies. We'll get them together. It's not like Barney forged the chains he wears in life. You know, that's not... I don't know, that's... Anyway. <laughs> but it's for children, I guess. Anyway, yeah, so... I remember watching a Flintstones Christmas Carol and, and so many other cartoon adaptations of this story. Post-production Andrew back again, and evidently... All I could think of in the car was the 1994 Flintstones Christmas Carol, but there are possibly hundreds of other adaptations for stage, screen, and television, animated, live action, anything in between. Um, you've got film adaptations dating back to 1901. Alistair Sim in Scrooge in 1951 is often regarded as one of the best film adaptations of the story. Contemporary takes on the characters, such as Scrooged, 1988, starring Bill Murray. You've got A Christmas Carol starring a cast of the Looney Tunes, the Mickey Mouse Gang, the Muppets, dogs, and the role of Ebenezer Scrooge, played by Tim Curry, Jim Carrey, Michael Caine, Simon Callow, Kelsey Grammer, Patrick Stewart, Ryan Reynolds. There are musical Christmas carols. There's a lot. Like, you can you can probably find a Wikipedia page of, like, adaptations of The Christmas Carol. I am sure something like that exists. Does it ever. And that's where I got all of the research for that whole last monologue from. Thank you, Wikipedia. I bring this up also because it's very popular to, you know, see a stage adaptation. Um, again, just drawing on my own experience. I remember seeing a community theater adaptation of this, um... Uh, in in grade school, like it might have even been a class field trip to to see a matinee of a Christmas Carol um, on a local stage. Maybe even twice. I might be thinking of two separate two separate plays we saw. I remember when my partner worked at a theater company. You know, there was a and she was getting me into a, a lot of shows. Uh, there was an adaptation that was like a hip-hop remix of A Christmas Carol um, that I went and saw. I, like, 
I don't know. It's there's something about this story. I think for one thing, the fact that it's so it's so measurable. You know, you have the almost like biblical sense of like timing and demarcation of the different the different you know story beats. You have uh, the introduction where Scrooge is at his office. You see him being cruel and miserly to first his employee, Bob Cratchit, and then his nephew, who uh, Fred, who just wants to uh, have a good time around Christmas and enjoy the, the holiday. Um, and then two uh, charity workers coming around to collect for uh, the, the poor and underprivileged. Um, and sharing, Scrooge sharing some particularly uh, cruel and Malthusian uh, words on um, the, you know, recourse of, of the impoverished. Um, you know, basically like, uh, go into indentured servitude or die. And, um, you know, then he, he walks home like a grouch on Christmas Eve. You see how he lives. You see how he, uh, you know, is, is relatively well off, but will not spend an extra buck. Uh, just to, to heat his home. Um, how he, like, tucks into a bowl of... <laughs> a bowl of gruel as his Christmas Eve dinner and goes to sleep, like, uh, with bah humbug on his lips. Of course, you know, before tucking into that bowl of gruel, has a vision of a ghost on his, his door knocker. His uh, old partner now seven years dad, Jacob Marley. Um, and then Marley appears to him as a ghost in his house, rattles some chains spookily and says like, I didn't do life right, Ebenezer. Like, there's still time for you. You know, warns him of the visitation of the three ghosts. Yeah, Scrooge goes to bed, unsure what to think. Um, the ghost of Christmas past wakes him up, shows him a scene from his uh, younger childhood. Um, that illustrates how, like, uh, his tendency to be, you know, lonely and feel unwanted. Um, you get a, a little, little taste of what his home life was, uh, with his, his, uh, cruel and unloving father. <laughs> there's a, in the book, there's a, a little snippet that doesn't quite make it into most adaptations, I notice. Um, and this is why I wanted to reread the book, because, y you know, you, you kind of wonder, like, the story seems to be, like, gets pretty, pretty cemented over time, the more adaptations you see. And I was just wondering, what, what is actually in the text that does not make it into most adaptations? Hi, hello, post-production, Andrew is back, and I wanted to fill in some gaps from my recording before... I begin talking about the character of Alibaba. Alibaba is, of course, a character from the Thousand and One Arabian Nights, and he appears in Scrooge's past 
sort of manifest, leading a mule and carrying an axe and wearing foreign garb. And he he's a character. You know, it takes a minute or two to really sink in, but this is not actually a guy named Alibaba showing up at Scrooge's school and, like, rapping on the window pane. This is a, a daydream. Scrooge, we deduce, is a big reader, and reading is how he spends most of his leisure. And I want to rhapsodize a little bit about how this character could be adapted. That's not to say that the character of Alibaba is perhaps too problematic to put to screen. In fact, there was an adaptation of A Christmas Carol, the 2019 FX miniseries, that did adapt Alibaba, and he's played by Kayvon Novak, who you might recall as Nandor the Relentless from FX's What We Do in the Shadows. But say you're adapting A Christmas Carol and you don't want to depict Scrooge as a lonely bookworm. Perhaps you could have another character appearing in the flesh to show some concern for young Ebenezer. Uh, Like a teacher or some school administrator or a coach or some authority figure who's an adult who perhaps cannot take direct responsibility for Ebenezer. It's not really their business where Ebenezer is spending Christmas. Somebody who might show some concern, but is at a certain level of remove where they can't really fix his home life. You know, I just saw the holdovers and maybe that's speaking to me a little bit. I think this is part of the inherent tragedy of Ebenezer Scrooge that is often not deeply explored in most adaptations in favor of the wahoo it's christmas there's time to fix everything apparently um he wasted his life that is really brutally sad he had so many opportunities to turn things around to mend fences to live the kind of life that he later comes around to envying as an old man. And he traded all of that away in in favor of money. That is really depressing. (laughs) And not that, you know, as a child, Ebenezer had the same kind of responsibility for directing his life in this way. I think it would be interesting to show that even when things were kind of gloomy, he still had people who loved and cared for him. He still had Fan, his doting sister. His father may not have been that sort of a person to him as a child, but maybe he had, you know, a a teacher or somebody who was in his corner from the get-go. So next thing, uh, you know, you see his early childhood. You see him as a young man, as an apprentice to Fezziwig at some warehouse. It's also, I don't know if this is context that the Victorian reader would have, but it's not super clear uh, what Scrooge does at Scrooge and Marley. Like, what what is the work? I don't think it matters. The point is that he is, you know, penny-pinching, um, and that he owns his own business, and that he's a, a tyrant to his employees, um, of which we only ever see one, Bob Cratchit, but at any rate... Um, But yeah, so 
you, you see him as an apprentice to Fezziwig, who also unclear what the work is, but uh, Fezziwig is a, a jolly guy who throws a big bash of a Christmas party, no expense spared. Everybody has a, a ball of a time. Um, and uh, then we get a scene of uh, Ebenezer getting dumped by his fiance Belle, who uh, forebodingly tells him that all he seems to care about is money. And he kind of protests, like, no, no, I'm, I'm trying to, like, come up with a good life for us. Um, I've read enough, like, enough romances of the period to understand that this is, like, a concern. Not a, you know, totally irrelevant, uh, point, um, that... You know, read any Austin book. It's like, how is he going to provide for you, miss? Like, this is an important consideration. Um, but maybe he takes it a little too far. Maybe they are okay, and he's just like, no, but I want more. Um, any rate, so, yeah, this is the first sad memory of Christmas past, really. Um, they're all kind of bittersweet, because he remembers, like, first as a boy, um, spending Christmas or expecting to spend Christmas kind of alone and unloved. Um, and even when he, he sees his sister in this memory, um, he recalls sadly that she, uh, grew to adulthood, had one child, Fred, um, his nephew, and then passed away young. Um, so they're all kind of tinged with sadness because, you know, it's the past. It's like, you know, whatever was good about it, it's, it's now, you know, now maybe gone. Um, and then, uh, Ghost of Christmas Past whisk, whisks him back, and then the Ghost of Christmas Present appears to him, um, in his own living room as, like, a, a jolly, like, you know, kind of, uh, Bacchus-type figure, a Santa Claus, proto-Santa Claus, if you will, um, who shows him around to different Christmas celebrations to, uh, Fred's house, where they're basically talking about what a mean old bastard he is and having a great old time, to, uh, the Cratchits, where, you know, we meet Tiny Tim for the first time, um, see his infirmity, but his, you know, pluck and good spirit in spite of all that. Um, we see other Christmases around London and around England, in fact. We see Belle's Christmas. Um, Belle, uh, Scrooge's ex-fiance many years prior, who is now married with a, a large family, many children. And then, of course, you know, as, as Christmas present draws to a close, uh, the ghost of Christmas present becomes notably aged. Um, and Scrooge, uh, notes a couple, uh, scrawny children hiding under his cloak need and want are basically there to represent the, the kind of sadness, the underbelly, the depravity of, of Christmas present. And then you, you know, you get into Christmas future or Christmas yet to come, which is the scary one, the, the kind of Grim Reaper hooded Christmas. Uh, as an aside, I think this points to uh, a, a genre of Christmas horror uh, that we maybe don't see quite enough of, except in the case of movies, like B-horror movies, like Krampus. 
and so forth. Like, this is a real genre that has legs um, throughout our culture. Like, Christmas has kind of a spooky side to it. Ghosts exist in, you know, are part of, like, you know, the Christmas mythology. And I think um, this is maybe a little bit underrepresented in our contemporary culture outside of its own, like, the kind of niche that's been drawn up for it, um, as I mentioned, with movies like Krampus and so forth. Um, anyway, Christmas Future shows him, you know, Christmas where a man has died and, like, people are, you know, sacking his house for valuables and pawning them off, um, and talking about a funeral that'll be held and, like, like, how nobody can really be bothered to attend unless food will be served, but, um, you know, and he, of course, is kind of thick about all this, does not realize that he's being shown his own, you know, uh, his own death and the aftermath of that. Um, he sees a Cratchit family Christmas where Tiny Tim has passed away, and, uh, you know, the family is, is struggling to cope and doing their best to remember him, um, you know, fondly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's altogether, like, kind of a bummer, and he's very explicitly shown, without words, because the ghost of Christmas yet to come does not speak, but he's explicitly shown, like, this is what's going to happen if you stay the course. And then it ends up with uh, him waking up, and Christmas has not passed, as he was led to believe that the ghost would be appearing, like hours or days forward, that he wakes up on Christmas morning, um, he has kind of a, uh, a revelatory, you know, he reaches an emotional climax of the story where he realizes that, um, he needs to live in the past, present, and future, and keep Christmas in his heart always, and, uh, you know, live more generously, um, live for the people around him, and all that, and it's all very, very nice, and he, he buys a turkey, uh, the one as big as me, and sends it to the Cratchits, um, and, uh, spends Christmas with his nephew Fred to, to sort of mend bridges, and, um, oh, there's one scene at the very end where, you know, it goes until, uh, the story runs until December 26th, wherein, uh, Scrooge comes back to the office and gives Bob Cratchit a scare when he, like, at first accosts him for being late, quote-unquote, because he is still early. Um, accosts him for being late and then, you know, uh, reveals that it's all just a joke and that he, uh, is a new man and he's gonna, you know, care for Bob better, um, gives him a raise, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then we're told by the narration that Tiny Tim doesn't die, that, uh, Scrooge spends all the years remaining to him, um, being known for a better man, and that's great. It's, uh, it's lovely. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, puts a nice button on the whole thing, um, And, uh, 
yeah, it is, it is a pretty, it's kind of an emotional story because you see what this guy has, has lost and the opportunities that he's passed on in his life and the decisions that he's made to turn away from, um, a future, but also, you know, the, uh, the future that he could have, but then also, uh, the things that kind of made him that way, the, the bitter experiences that he'd had in his life, um, and also the things around him that he's just not really keyed into, not paying attention to, not choosing to care for. Um, and the, you know, of course, the the ghost of Christmas yet to come is kind of a stinger because it, it shows him, like, how badly things could yet go. Um, I think, like, the ghost of Christmas past is maybe kind of like the emotional fulcrum does a lot of weight, a lot of lifting in the story, um, in, in my opinion. Um, but then, you know, everything kind of, everything kind of works out for the best. He, he does shape up. And I think that's, that's kind of a nice message to hear at Christmas time. It's also nice to hear about a story of charity. Um, and so another thing is, from what I've read, Dickens had a pretty predominantly middle-class readership, um, and he experienced a lot of, he witnessed firsthand the multitude of social problems that, that encircled, uh, industrialization and urbanization, and was pretty shocked and, and disgusted by it, uh, Scrooge is based off of a, uh, a real person, a, uh, British member of parliament who did make certain comments on the floor of parliament akin to Scrooge's, you know, maybe they had better die and decrease the surplus population. Again, very Malthusian rhetoric. Um, this is nothing, you know, uh, nothing new. This was within the Overton window of the time in, you know, circa 1840. And, uh, yeah, screw, or Dickens was really trying to, uh, turn a sharp eye on that. Although, his readership was also predominantly middle class, and was maybe not going to get on board with some of the more radical, uh, radical points that Dickens could have made. So he pulled some punches. And his hope with this story, um, such as by, you know, centering Tiny Tim as, like, the face of the, you know, noble poor in this story, um, perhaps his point with, with Tiny Tim was to give uh, the Cratchits a more sympathetic face um, and to encourage acts of charity among his, his audience members with means to do so. Um, you know, Christmas at, a, at the time was kind of changing. There had been, you know, in, in Victorian England, a lot of the traditions that we now associate with Christmas, Christmas trees, um, that was imported by Queen Victoria to the UK, largely. 
um, from Germany because, of course, she came from a more German family and uh, the house of uh, Sachs, Coburg, and Goethe, I want to say. And, um, you know, that, for instance, sending Christmas cards became uh, became more of a norm during um, the Victorian era. And other traditions were kind of uh, being relegated to, you know, the countryside or being viewed as more like peasant traditions. Um, and of course, many of the, the traditional Christmas uh, activities of Britain um, would have been, you know, like thinking back from like the Middle Ages and so forth, like you read uh, The Green Knight, for instance, and clearly there was a whole host of Christmas traditions and obligations and, uh, you know, kinds of merriment that were experienced in or common to, you know, a reader or a, a listener, an audience member in the Middle Ages that, you know, had long been no more by the time Dickens was writing. Um, many Christmas traditions actually date back to Dickens, to this story. Um, that he was actually instrumental in shaping them. And the fact that this story gained cachet among British readers and, and then more broadly English language readers uh, owes to the fact that it, you know, over the decades became associated with being like a, a children's fable. You know, of course, a lot of Christmas traditions would have been uh, changed significantly or reformed in the years of uh, the uh, revolution of Oliver Cromwell. Um, the Puritans certainly had a different uh, perspective on Christmas and Christmas revelry. Um, this is kind of unrelated, but I think in the UK there was a time when Christmas was, was more of a more of a, like a kind of body holiday or celebration, time of celebration. Um, clearly still a religious, you know, celebration in origin, but a lot of the traditions were, were kind of more like adult oriented. Um, and then there was a time where it began to shift towards being a chill, uh, celebration more for, more by children or for families. Um, you also have in the 19th century more of a development of, you know, the family unit as a type of, uh, as a, as a centralizing, you know, unit of social organization. Um, you know, a time when medicine had advanced to the point where, uh, more children, you know, survived to adulthood than ever before. Um, families became smaller parents invested more uh, resources, both emotional and, um, you know, economic and so forth, in their children. Um, so I think this, this kind of all, you know, creates this perfect storm that, that launches this story um, into the, you know, forward in, into the 21st century. Um, of course, it's, you know, a story that can be told and retold and adapted. You know, there's always going to be, uh, 
you know, a, a cruel, miserly, um, well, maybe not always, a better future is possible. Um, but there, you know, since the release of this book, in the Anglophone world, there has always been uh, a cruel and, you know, miserly upper, upper class that, you know, uh, could, could stand to hear this appeal and learn something from it. I don't know if that's, again, it's, it's kind of, I think, more directed at middle class viewers or, or readers who are inclined to see this story, um, sympathize with the, the poor and even the middle class characters such as Fred, be critical of the, the, the wealthy characters like Scrooge and Marley, um, and be moved to their own, you know, acts of charity towards the less fortunate. Um, but what else do I want to say? I saw a production of this recently with, uh, this, you know, prominent actor, as mentioned. Not a brag, by the way. <laughs> um, and it kind of turned into a Christmas pantomime, uh, which is more of a tradition in, in the UK. Um, Christmas pantos are sort of like, as I've, as I've heard them describe, they're four children and drunk adults. It's like a, a Christmas-themed show where, um, you know, there's maybe not so much of a story, but like a, a theme of, like, revelry and partying and lots of food. There's, there's kind of that, that similar breakdown in a lot of Christmas-oriented media, uh, like the Nutcracker has, uh, certainly in the ballet, definitely in the original story, The Nutcracker, by E.T.A. Hoffman. Um, there, there's kind of this, this, like, I don't even think it qualifies as a scene, but more of, like, a, uh, I, I don't know, like a vignette? you know, Christmas partying, like, there's food and treats, um, every, every kind of, like, you know, sweet, snacky thing you could imagine, um, lots of candied fruit, um, and, uh, yeah, the, the characters just kind of, like, revel and enjoy themselves, they dance, they, you know, sing songs, they snack. This, this production of A Christmas Carol had kind of a Christmas panto themed scene in it where the whole show sort of pauses. This is right after Scrooge wakes up and, and decides to be different. The whole show pauses. Um, they start, like the actors start sending food, you know, prop food down, um, curtains from the upper galleries down onto the stage and the lead actor, the Scrooge, kind of, uh, you know, finds a child from the audience to, like, carry a cake across the stage, um, to deliver it to the Marleys, and that kind of thing, um, and it just becomes this, this party atmosphere for a moment, and then, um, the, the whole thing, I think that's, that's very artfully placed. It's, 
intertextual with kind of the tradition of British, you know, Christmas, uh, Christmas theater. Um, it's artfully placed because then, you know, you kind of slam on the brakes. They add a scene where Scrooge, um, thinks, wow, I can fix everything. And he gets a, a little, you know, a little too big for his britches and goes and, uh, approaches his ex fiance from many decades previous, Belle, um, who is at home celebrating Christmas with her large family <laughs> and says, like, is it too late for us, basically? Um, and she's like, yeah, like, you kind of missed the boat. I am married, and, you know, like, we had something, but I couldn't wait for you. Um, and that kind of goes to show, like, there's... I think that that show does something very artful in, in that it ends on the note of you know, yeah, you still have time, but let's not, you know, it's, it's a little easy to rest on your laurels, a little easy to, to just leave a Christmas carol or finish the book and think like, wow, he did it. That's great. And like, to just think, okay, that's it then. Um, I know other productions of the show also, you know, after Carton Call, um, while the audience is kind of riding that high, um, you know, actors may step forward and, and say, we're also raising money for this charity. So if you feel moved by this show, if you're feeling in a charitable mood, here's an option for you. Um, that's great. But I think what this show, this production in particular did really well, um, was ending it on a note of like, all right, you know, you say you want to be better. You say you want to do this. Clock's ticking. You better figure that one out. Because you only have so much time on this on this earth um, to manage that. And also, like, you can't just, like, throw yourself at people and, and say, like, hey, I'm better now. Won't you forgive me? Like, you got to earn that back. You've spent a lifetime, or at least decades, being a miserly old coot, and you gotta, you know, earn that back. I think, you know, another problem with the original story, if I'm to be, like, a little critical and didactic and moralizing about it, um, another problem with the story is that, you know, the whole world kind of revolves around Scrooge and his acts of, of service and goodwill at the end, um... Like, he decides, hey, I want to give to charity. He goes and finds the two men who were trying to raise funds from him earlier and gives them the money that they asked for, like, many times over. That's great, but, like, they're just standing around waiting for him to do that, you know, essentially, on Christmas Day. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's some, some cultural context that I'm missing, but that does stand out to me. Another is that, you know... Uh, like, he, he sends a big turkey to the Cratchits. Uh, that's great. It's anonymous. That's fine. Like, maybe they had other plans for dinner, but I, I assume this is a time when, like, hey, giant turkey, this is great. We'll drop everything and prepare it. Not like, oh, I gotta make room in the oven. You know, that's kind of more of a modern take on it, um, I suppose, more presentist. But, you know, he, he gives Bob Cratchit kind of a scare, like, at the... And we know, we're in on the joke, when Cratchit comes in on the 26th at, like, 8 a.m., and he's still late, and 
uh, Scrooge is like, what do you mean coming in at this time? Just as a, as a joke, as a prank, bro. Um, it's kind of like, why do you have to do it like that, though? <laughs> why do you have to scare him? Um, we're in on the joke, so we think it's fine. But, like, you know, it doesn't seem very charitable or good-spirited. And, and again, Bob Cratchit is kind of gullible. He, he raises a toast to Scrooge at their own Christmas dinner and then is, like, shouted down about it by his family. But, like, why would he do that? He's getting the brunt of it, really. He, he's just too affable. At any rate, I'm not saying Scrooge needed to set up the Ebenezer Scrooge Foundation for, for you know, uh, child poverty or something, but maybe you could have, I don't know. My point is, uh, I think there are some problems with the story. I understand why it's uh, told as a moralizing tale at Christmas. Um, I think it's really fascinating and worth looking into, you know, the, the production history of it, the publication history of it. Um, and I think it says a lot about our culture that it's so enduring and, you know, not in a bad way, not in a damning way, certainly, but it's, it's interesting. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Uh, I am at my destination, so I thank you for listening, dear listener. I hope you had uh, a great holiday season. Thank you to Scott Suter for the intro and outro theme. Find him on Instagram at Copenhagen Cool Ranch and on SoundCloud at Scott Suter. Visit us online at uh, letmeexplainyouathing.com. I can never remember my own website's name at first. I have to think about it. Take care. Have a great day. And if you're listening to this to fall asleep, uh, have a great night. Bye-bye.